You only have one life to live, so get the most out of it. On Good Life, Great Life, join me, Brian Highfield, and my guests as we share success stories, habits, mindsets, and lessons learned by successful people. These lessons are not taught in schools, but are critical for getting ahead in life. Whether you want a successful business or career, optimal health, or a lifestyle that most people just dream of, Good Life, Great Life has you covered. After retiring from a successful corporate career in my 40s, I founded multi-million dollar businesses in the sports and healthcare arenas. Now, I help everyday people maximize their lives and speak regularly at seminars, on podcasts, and radio shows to share principles on the topics of health, wealth, and happiness. Don't let a good life get in the way of a great life. Join me today on Good Life, Great Life. Well, welcome to another episode of Good Life, Great Life. In today's episode, we have Rick Battenberg III. And Rick is uh, the a former Merrill Lynch financial advisor, but the current founder and chief investment officer of the tech venture capital and consulting firm, Clientel Capital. Welcome to the program, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And our audience wants to get to know you and what you're all about uh, a little bit. So can you describe for us what Clientel does and, and uh, your involvement? Sure. Uh, you know, so Clientel was founded in 2015, um, and it was really a response to really the capital inefficiency I saw in cannabis at the time. Um, and uh, really what we do here is uh, we find companies and or founders that we feel like um, meet certain criteria that we're looking for. You know, we kind of have an ethos of, you know, you bet on the person, not the deal, because the deal can change. Uh, but the person that you bet on, you know, they can find a way to, to navigate those, those problems. So, um, you know, we look for really anything that we think is clever that has a, um, what we would describe as an asymmetrical risk to return profile, uh, meaning that we think that the risk, the risk outweighs the, um, I'm sorry, the, the reward outweighs the risk considerably. Um, and for that can be for a variety of reasons, but by evaluating the deals through a little bit of a different lens than less of a traditional kind of um, analyst approach, it allows us to identify opportunities that, that maybe other people have, uh, have missed. So um, I like to say we put the people, ideas and resources together to create value for the stakeholders, for the employees and for the customers. So um, when you can do that, uh, it's really quite magical. You know, you can put, to, put together something that, that benefits everyone involved. So, you know, I like to think of venture capital kind of the central ignition point to, um, you know, the, the conglomeration of the people, ideas and resources. So the ability to put those pieces together in a way that is uh, fundable or, or, you know, able to grow or able to, you know, be exited um, through, you know, traditional corporate governance and capital strategy. So um, what we do really is, um, you know, we'll find a, a deal or an idea or a, or a company that we think is, uh, has a strategic position in the context of whatever its addressable market is, and then make sure that they look and feel and taste like a company that can be um, scaled and, you know, funded and invested in and grown and eventually exited. Um, and that comes in a variety of, um, uh, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call services. So, you know, whether that's making sure their deck's correct, the data room's correct, making sure that their corporate governance is correct, the, the capital instruments they're using to fund the company are correct. Um, you know, they have the right type of investors, they have the right type of advisors, they got the right type of board of directors, and they have the right type of uh, executive team that is able to scale that business. Um, and that's really where 
our value add comes in beyond the capital is uh, making sure that they look and feel and taste like a company that can, that can uh, you know, take on that type of funding and, and handle growth. So, so for, for our audience that doesn't, isn't aware, I mean, how does the venture capital model work at just, just in general? Sure. So venture capital um, differs from private equity in, in one real main way, which is in venture, we're earlier um, and we're looking for a higher return. So generally private equity is going to take a position, a private position into a company that's kind of already cash flowing or already has a, a tremendous amount of revenue. Uh, and venture, you know, we'll do everything from just an idea to, you know, kind of a nascent pre-revenue business or, you know, even just a small growing you know, a business. So really the only difference between private equity and venture is the size is really the truth. But in venture, um, you know, we're looking for a 10x, meaning I want 10 times on my, on my money, which means that generally you're very early uh, in the process, which is really where I, I find I have the most fun um, is, is kind of helping them build that growth. So in venture capital, we take a private position uh, into a privately traded company uh, traditionally and, um, and you know, kind of help that company scale. And so we'll use a variety of financial instruments to accomplish that that are in the best interest of both the company and the investors. Um, and in venture capital, traditionally, we will have a venture fund uh, and that fund, I have private investors that have invested into that fund. And then the fund makes an investment into the target assets or the companies we're talking about um, uh, and, uh, and manages that investment on behalf of the venture fund. And um, so we have a venture fund. It's our, our fourth fund um, here in the last, I guess, eight years now. And uh, that fund takes strategic positions into privately trade pri private companies. Um, and uh, that's, that's kind of the crux of it. And then the fund gets the return and then the fund returns the capital to the investors that are holding uh, assets in that fund. So how do you, and you touched on this a little bit, but really how do you, how do you find these companies to invest in? Where, where do you look for them? Um, you know, so the key really in venture capital to sourcing deal flow is you have to develop a network of other people that are in the deal making business that are in the entrepreneurial in that in that space that um, you have a relationship with that know what to bring you and that's really the key so you know you can always source deals traditionally like looking on you know analyst reports or looking on you know whatever it may be there's plenty of tools out there that you could source deals um, but the best deals are generally the ones that never make it to those lists, right? The best deals are the ones that my buddy calls me and goes, hey, mm -hmm. I, I got something for you. Um, and that really comes with just years of, you know, making sure that you're constantly available. And, you know, I have a policy that I always take the meeting because I, I can tell you how often somebody walks into my office that they think they've got one thing, but, you know, they don't have quite got it. But if we add this one, you know, this other company and we combine it with this and they think of it a different way, then all of a sudden, you know, now I'm looking at a deal nobody else has looked at simply because it wasn't put together that way. So, um, you know, being open to, um, even if something on its face doesn't look quite like you want it to, um, you know, I kind of have a policy, I'll give anybody 15 minutes so that, you know, maybe they just don't know how to articulate the deal in a way that makes sense, or maybe they not thinking of it the right way. Um, but because I have a, a lot of uh, experience over the last, you know, my, life, my lifetime of, of kind of being in that position and hearing from a lot of um, entrepreneurs, um, the diversity of skill set and information that I have simply by hearing so many deals allows me to contextualize the deals within a larger macroeconomic market that I might hear something that somebody else doesn't because they don't have the same contextual information. Mm -hmm. So everybody's, everybody's skill set's different. Everyone's you know, experience is different, which means that you've got a different contextual information. So your ability to evaluate a deal is contingent on you know, how much 
information you have to, to compare it against. So, you know, like anything else, the longer you do it, the, the easier it gets and the faster you can do it. So um, sourcing deal flow for me is all about, I have strategic partners and friends and mentors and other investors that they know what to bring me um, because it fits the ethos of, of kind of what we do. So that's the best way to get deals, obviously, is because they're kind of pre-vetted by somebody that I know and trust. And um, but, uh, you know, deals can come to you all kinds of different ways. The key is being uh, open uh, yeah. and being, being willing to, to listen. Yeah, yeah, I really like that networking aspect of it. It's really about your network and and people relationships you build and people you trust and they kind of know what to look for and and do that. And I also like what you said, you know, just being open minded about that. You have this fifteen minute policy. You'll you'll listen to you know almost any idea that someone brings to you. You give them fifteen minutes to evaluate it because I think I think that there's probably been a lot of great deals that have been thrown away because you know the the cover of the book didn't look so good. You know what? And it's really interesting because if you I you know, there, there's a very traditional way of evaluating business opportunity that has to do with, you know, you evaluate the first, the overall market of whatever addressable market they're after. And what is the, you know, diligence baseline for what a company in that space and that, you know, part of the supply chain can and should do. What's the opportunity? Can you arbitrage the opportunity? And it's a very uh, kind of sterile evaluation of a, of a market position and, and the company itself. You know, in, in venture, we have less of that as a, um, kind of a benchmark simply because you might be looking at companies that, um, you know, I call them French paintings, right? They're worth what somebody will pay because there's no anything to multiply their revenue by because mm. if they're revenue, right? So your evaluation has to become a lot less um, quantitative and, and more qualitative so that, uh, and that's in, in my opinion, where you kind of find the value in venture is you're evaluating qualitative um, attributes of a company, whether that be the strength of the CEO or, you know, its strategic position within the context of the market or, you know, there's other things you can look at that are less quantifiable. Um, and I think that that's really where we as a venture firm excel is, is evaluating human beings and their potential. So, um, you know, really understanding, um, and I meant what I said, you bet on the person, not the deal, because the, yeah. the deal always changes, especially. Yeah. And, and that seems like the, the approach from, uh, uh, from um, oh gosh, what, what, what's the show on CNBC? Um, Shark Tank. Shark Tank. Yeah. So they are always, they're always evaluating the person. I think they, they put the value of the person presenting the deal as much as the, as the company itself. Uh, absolutely. And so kind of my, my three benchmarks when I'm looking at, at leaders and CEOs um, is one, they have to be emotionally connected to the success or failure of the company. Two, they have to really understand their numbers, meaning they need to understand down to the nth degree how they make money. And then three is, um, you know, what they really have to um, be able to either really understand everyone's job in the company or be able to do everybody's job in the company. Um, and the reason for that is, especially in startup mode, lean startup mode, um, you know, you lose somebody or, or, you know, somebody's sick or whatever it might be. But if the CEO is able to go in there and fill those gaps and they're emotionally connected to the success or failure of the company, the progress won't stop even if you are having trouble with whatever it might be of some technical component of what you're doing. So I really like CEOs that have a um, specific skill set in the industry that they're going into. So, you know, I can teach somebody how to be a CEO. I can't teach them, you know, molecular biology to do a biotech deal. Right. So, you know, being a CEO is, I think, a skill set that can be learned. Um, whereas if you've got specific tribal expertise into a, a market, not only are you going to understand the macroeconomics of, of applying that to your, to your, um, your business itself, 
but you're also going to be able to um, step in and kind of bridge gaps where traditionally, if you're a you know CEO that's not a doctor and you want to do a biotech company and you don't understand the technical components and you have to hire somebody from outside and you got an exact, you know, it's a bigger expense. You don't know if they're right or not. So those are kind of my three first benchmarks. So like, okay, you gotta be this tall to ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if you don't have one of those three things, it's very unlikely that, um, you know, it would, it's a much longer road for us to, to kind of get involved. Yeah. Uh, but it, I guess that is a little qualitative, but I mean, at the same time, it's, it's more, um, you know, your impression of, of the CEO and, and the leader and the person that's asking for, for your help. Um, yeah. So, so you mentioned like, you know, knowing your numbers, um, you know, how did, how do the nth degree, how, how they're making money, knowing the employees jobs. Uh, so what, what else for, for, a, for a startup or someone who's got a business up and running, what else do they need to really keep in mind if they uh, want to look to venture capital or to raise capital because they, they have these big plans to really grow that business? Sure. So I think a common mistake um, that I see a lot is that um, new companies will come to venture or investors with a really like strict idea of what the financing needs to look like, meaning they'll come with an existing financial instrument, whether that's a equity raise or a safe note or whatever it might be. And that's what we, that's a mistake, especially coming to somebody like myself or a, a venture firm is because we're going to want to design a financial instrument that makes sense for both our fund and for the company itself. So a common mistake I see is bad capital strategy. Um, and this happens, especially with the type of CEO that I described that I like is because they weren't finance guys, right? So I've seen this 150 million times. Like, mm. is that a good company that checks all those boxes, you know, uses the wrong financial instrument or they raise too much money too soon. They give away too much of the company and then they end up hamstringing themselves because they don't have control of the equity anymore or they've got high interest debt that they can't move forward. And then they, they're, they end up ruling by committee of this investor group that, you know, has different opinions on what's going yeah. on and what's supposed to go down. So, you know, scaling your expectations back on how much capital you need, you really want to think go strategically and go, okay, what's my company really worth today? Not, you know, oh, I want money based on future earnings. Go, okay, what's my company worth today? How much am I willing to give up? And my rule of thumb is 20% of what the company's worth is what you should be looking at in equity. So if your company's worth a million bucks, what can you do with 200,000? Okay, so, and what benchmark does that 200,000 get to you where you can raise the valuation again, right? So you don't need to raise money to, we got 15 checkpoints that we're gonna hit here in between the next 24 months and we need $10 million to do it. Well, your company's worth a million dollars, right? So what are you doing, right? There's no reason to raise that much money. You wanna go, okay, we wanna scale how much money we need based off of you know, future checkpoints, right? And so it's much simpler, or not simpler necessarily, but what you wanna go into a pitch with is you sell them on the vision, Right. You don't have to sell them on the financial instrument. You don't got to tell them, oh, well, we want this valuation at this price. Right. No, sell them on. Here's how we're getting from here to there. Right. Here's what's going to happen. Right. Here's the benchmarks that we think we can hit. Here's the check marks that increase the enterprise value of our company. Um, And then you can reverse engineer a uh, financial instrument with an expert, you know, that that is vested in now in your success where you can tranche the investment. Right. Or if you go to a good partner, they go, okay. Well, you know, we give you 2 million now. And if you hit this benchmark, we'll give you another 2 million. And if you hit this benchmark, we'll give you another 2 million. And that is really how you want to come to investors because you don't need to sell them on the financial instrument. You need to sell them on the vision of what you're trying to accomplish and yeah. then tell them how much money you need to each hit each benchmark 
right? And that's how you negotiate the deal. And then you'll come up with the financial instrument. You don't have to go with an offering. You know? Yeah, it's funny because it reminds me of, of, a, of a story of a CEO, CEO I know. He went into a, a meeting with um, uh, some, some uh, equity uh, to get some equity uh, to partner some, some investors to, to invest. And he was talking about all financials first. And then midway through his presentation, he, he then shared the vision, which was we have the only natural product ever proven to extend lifespan. And every hand in the room went up and said, why did you start off with that? Why, you know, why did you bury that in the middle of your presentation? So, so that actually brings me to another point, um, which is there's been a couple deals that I've done. Um, and specifically, uh, this is uh, legal gambling space that I did about a year ago that I, I sit on the board of this company. And for, for legal purposes, I'm not going to disclose what the company is, but you'll be finding out very soon how, how cool this is. But the point of it is that, um, you know, when I got pitched this deal from a, from a friend who'd put in like half a million into this deal, who he's a doctor, he's not an investment guy, he's, a, he's a, you know, his MD, unbelievable mm -hmm. surgeon, one of the best in the world at, in, in his particular field. And, um, you know, he's like, hey, you know, I put half a million dollars in this deal. Will you look at it for me? And I'm like, sure. But like, maybe in, let's do this in reverse next time. Yeah. <laughs> but I started looking at this deal and um, I'm like, holy shit, this is a, this, this thing's got some legs. Like, you know, and obviously I kind of come to deals like that where I'm like, okay, I'm looking for the other shoe, right? I'm like, okay, yeah. what? Yeah. Something's wrong Sounds too good to be true. There's something goofy. Yeah. Um, you know, and generally my process, especially when I'm doing diligence is I will bring in either strategic investors that I know have a specific expertise in the industry that we're looking at um, and kind of just get their opinion. What do, what do you think of this? You know, what's wrong with this, blah, blah, blah. You know, and the first person I brought it to was somebody who had industry expertise in this specific field and not only wrote a check, but wanted a board seat. And I was like, okay, well, I better start paying attention to this. Yeah. Um, you know, as I'm talking to the CEO who <laughs> was a Brooklyn cop for 20 years um, and then for 10 years uh, owned bars and restaurants and ATMs. Um, but he sounds like a Brooklyn cop, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and him describing what he's, what this is, it sounds like bluster, you know, it, it sounds, you know, cause he looks and he sounds like a Brooklyn cop. So, you know, I think that the reason that steel ever even made it to my desk, cause you know, I'm, I'm a small shop comparatively to, you know, some of these other big VCs. Um, and I was like, the only reason it made it to me is because he didn't sound convincing, right? He didn't, he didn't sound like he got it. He didn't sound like a CEO, didn't sound like a startup guy, didn't sound like he had any business being in what he had, what he had. Um, and once you kind of got past that, and this is what I'm talking about, the, the non-quantitative evaluation of an opportunity is that because he just couldn't articulate the deal in a way that made sense to somebody like me. And so once I was able to really dig in and kind of, you know, put a sport coat on him and, and, <laughs> and pick the deal for him, all of a sudden, funded like I had it 100% funded in in two months um and so that was that was sort of interesting to me is that you know the ability to tell a story is really important um especially if you're a pre-revenue company if you just if you're if you're brand new you've got to be able to sell the vision you got to be you know you've got to be the guy and and if you're not the guy you need to find somebody to be the guy who can tell the story because we as human beings in general, we learn through anecdotes, you know, we learn through anthology. That's just how it's just part of our nature is that we want to be told a story that we understand and can, can connect to. Mm -hmm. um, and especially if there's no real financials associated with this, if it's all just, all, you know, these are all guesses, you know, you better be a, uh, you know, persuasive and, and convincing leader. 
So um, I think that that's like an important component to, to leadership in general is your ability to tell the story and, and inspire leadership because you need people to follow you, especially in a- yeah. Yeah, if you can't share that vision, no one's going to see it and no one's going to follow you. Well, exactly. and luckily, you know, I have sort of made a business out of um, comprehension, you know, and, and trying to be able to look past the face value of an opportunity um, and identify, you know, asymmetrical risk to return profiles simply based off of the human beings. Um, and don't get me wrong, I've made mistakes, <laughs> certainly. Um, but, you know, I, I fastest way to know whether you can trust somebody is to trust them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, go back for us a little bit and talk about the transition for you personally from being a financial advisor and then um, and then becoming the chief investment officer and starting up uh, clientele capital. Sure. Um, so when I was at Merrill Lynch, uh, I had a very senior partner and I did about 203 transactions on the buy side of IPOs, new issues. Um, so, you know, where there's an IPO or a company's issuing new stock. You know, I was in there at 5.30 a.m. doing the actual ordering of those of those stocks into my, my portfolio. Mm. Uh, we had 100% of the allocation for Colorado. So I did a lot of those transactions, which meant that I was reading a lot of prospectuses of these companies because I had then had to turn around and parrot it to, uh, you know, in an abbreviated fashion to my high net worth investors that were, were buying these IPOs uh, or new issues. Uh, so really the, the crux of why I was like, okay, I, I don't like this anymore is one, I didn't like the correlation without causation, meaning, you, you know, you're picking stocks, but you don't really have any influence over whether those companies are going to be successful or not, which means mm -hmm. that I didn't feel, I, I didn't feel good about picking a stock and then hoping, you know, uh, it, it, I didn't feel like that was authentic to who I am and um, my, my investors that were, uh, had capital with me. I, I didn't like it. I, it felt bad, um, especially when there'd be some macroeconomic movement that would affect the portfolio and, um, you know, I remember specifically, I held a lot of Apple stock at the time and, uh, Tim Cook came out as gay at the time and the mm -hmm. Apple stock took a hit and I had some conservative clients that were calling me yelling at me. And I was, it really upset me. I was, I was like, this is, I don't think I want to do this. Yeah. Um, and right around the same time, um, I started bringing in more private equity, like approved private equity deals that were, uh, approved by Merrill Lynch. And, and, um, you know, I had a group called the Abraj group come in from um, Dubai and London and New York. And it was this, this, this uh, female and male guy that came in from, they, I think she was from New York and he was from London and they were flying through to pitch a private equity deal out of Abraj group to my, my client. Um, and I remember the pitch. It was, it was so cool. It was, you know, they were consolidating dairy farms. So when a, when a country moves from third world to second world or second world to first world, from second term, you know, from three to two, they start consuming more dairy from two to one, they start consuming more meat. So what they were doing is they were going into Africa, they were buying up, um, you know, independent dairy farms, consolidating them, putting in their own management, reducing redundancies, and they were just crushing this private equity route between 18 and 30% IRR. Uh. Um, but what I remembered amongst the deal, which is just stuck in my brain, because I remember it being like a eureka moment for me, like, oh, this is what I want to be doing. This is way cool. Um, you know, and they were well-dressed and they were drinking and they were spoke three languages and they weren't even staying there tonight. They were flying through Denver to LA. They were like in to pitch my clients and headed back to the airport. And I was like, okay, this, this is, seems like more like what I want to do. Yeah. You know, when I grew up, my father's an entrepreneur. And so, you know, I grew up working, reading PL since I was four. Um, and so it was a natural transition. And part of it was I noticed a capital inefficiency in the Colorado market. And I happened to be in Colorado. Uh, my father had already made some passive investments into cannabis. And I was like, well, I 
bet you, because the rules from the marijuana enforcement division at the time where you had to be a two-year Colorado resident to invest into, into cannabis. And so at the time, there was no rules around this. I just guessed. I was like, I'll bet you if I create a blind pool fund that the investors have no say over the, the discretion of the assets, that they will allow me to have outside investors. And this was just a guess. And so I was working at this structure for a couple months, maybe longer. And uh, I had a, I've got I've got a few great mentors, but one of them is Heather Potters, who uh, she was Ernst & Young's person the year twice, then a hedge fund manager. And now she's CEO of a company called PharmaJet. And, uh, you know, I drove up to her office and like in between meetings and 45 minutes, she's like, oh, yeah, just do it like this. You know? <laughs> um, and that became um, the basis of, of me leaving Merrill Lynch was this um, fund that became the first qualified institutional fund in the United States to hold a license inside of uh, a venture fund based on the structure. Um, and so what that gave me was a very flexible funding instrument to kind of allocate across the supply chain of cannabis from grow extraction, dispensary, packaging, hardware, compliance, training, leasing, everything. And the point of that was to develop a diligence baseline on cannabis supply chain to go, okay, well, where in the supply chain do we really want to be and allocate our most you know, time, effort, attention? And the reason for that was because there was no diligence baseline, that it didn't exist, right? Nobody had done the business long enough for us to go, okay, well, this is what this business should be doing, this is where, right? So we started to go, okay what's going to be the most important thing in 20 years, right? And, and kind of where we landed was, okay, you don't really want to own the farm growing the grain for the gray goose. You don't really want to own the liquor store only its geographic loyalty. You really want to own the brand and the distribution. Um, and then outside of that, you're going, okay, well, ancillary to cannabis. I don't really like ancillary to cannabis and not, I, I think it was a common mistake, especially over the last seven years that, that people thought that there was less risk involved with an ancillary business that was servicing cannabis. But in my opinion, you've actually just assumed all the risk of the cannabis market in general and without the reward, right? Without the up top upside. So in my opinion, you've created an asymmetrical risk to return profile in the negative. So we go, okay, we want to be in the brand and distribution space. Um, and that's really what was the inciting factor for me leaving Merrill Lynch was, you know, one correlation without causation mm -hmm. affect the, uh, the outcome of those assets. Um, and by adding, you know, strategic and, and operational value to the companies that we're helping. So, you know, if they need more money, if they need whatever it might be, at least I'm on the board and I can I can help them versus me just, you know, picking a stock and hoping. Yeah. So that felt more tangible and I felt better about that when I was going to my investors going, hey, you know, <laughs> I've got this fund. I want, you know, we're going to do this. Um, but make no mistake, I, uh, I fell flat on my face <laughs> right when I left. You know, I was I'd raised a lot of money at Merrill. Um, and, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to open this $20 million fund. Yeah. And, oh my God, I fucking failed horribly. It's like <laughs> for the first, for the first, oh, I mean, 18, almost two years, I raised 300 grand. Um, and obviously, uh, it got better. It got better from there. Obviously. We, yeah. yeah and that'd be scary going out there and especially failing your first time. But I mean, obviously you were yeah. passionate enough about it to, to keep going and then give it another go. Well, and you know, part of it, it was just you get better, you know, I, if you don't look back at your past uh, behavior and cringe, then you're not growing as a person, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You, know, you learn from your mistakes and, and you right. do better next that's time. Right. You know, and so I think to date, you know, we've raised about 40 million. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been able to really grow some cool assets. You know, the Clear, Clear Cannabis Inc. is uh, one of the most well-known brands, the Clear, in uh, the United States. It's sold in nine states. Um, and, uh, you know, sold more vape pens under that brand than any other brand in the country. So, um, you know, to everything takes time longer than I'd like, but, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, uh, 
persevere, right? Yeah. Something important enough, you uh, find a way. Yeah. I mean, this is very interesting. I mean, there's, there's several takeaway points here. I mean, talk about what you talked about in the beginning about, you know, relationships and networking. I mean, that's true in really any business and, and especially yours. Um, the, the, the merit of the person being just as valuable as the merit of the, of the business itself. And again, I learned that from Shark Tank, right? And then, and then what you talked about, you know, you, you have to be able to communicate the vision. Otherwise, you're not going to have any followers. And those, those are three big takeaway points for me. I know we're running out of time, but how I got all the time. I got all the time you want. I'm I'm good till uh, two o'clock. So I didn't. Yeah, know yeah. I just I want to know how our audience can connect with with you, or how they can get to know you, or uh, learn more about sure. Clientel Capital. Sure. Uh, you know, you know, clientelcapital.com is is obviously a great starting point. LinkedIn is a great starting point if you're just looking for me on LinkedIn. Um, and then uh, you know, Frank, I, I I do a lot of interviews, so you know, you can just Google my name. <laughs> You'll find a lot of information on on past interviews I've done over the last you know, eight years or so. Um, but, you know, clientele, C-L-I-I-N-T-E-L, capital.com. Uh, and then you, know, you can find Kenneth with us on LinkedIn. But, you know, frankly, um, you know, they can go through your show. If, uh, I'm sure you'll have my information. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have the links there uh, next next to the show. So awesome. So our guest today has been Rick Battenberg. Uh, Rick is the, um, uh, the founder and chief investment officer of Clientele Capital. Uh, which is a tech venture capital and consulting firm. So Rick, thank you so much. This has been an awesome, awesome uh, interview. Hey, it's sincerely my pleasure. I really appreciate it. You're a great, you're a great interview. I, uh, I'm really grateful to be on the show. All right. Well, thank you again. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business.